Hello, listeners. My name is Craig Zerpolo, and welcome back to Why Science, a podcast about behavioral and emotional health research at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. This series is produced by COBE, the College Behavioral and Emotional Health Institute, with the assistance of WVCW Student Radio and the Alt Lab at VCU. For more information, visit kobe.vcu.edu, wvcw.org, and altlab.vcu.edu. This show is supported in part by the National Institute for Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. Music for Why Science is provided by Butcher Brown. Streamer purchased their new EP, Virginia Noir, at butcherbrown.bandcamp.com. Our guest today is Jessica Bourdon, a PhD student in the Psychiatric, Behavioral, and Statistical Genetics program at VCU, who studies pre-adolescent anxiety. My name is Jessica Bourdon, and I am a PhD student in the Psychiatric, Behavioral, and Statistical Genetics program here at VCU. So that's a fancy way of saying that I look at the genetic and environmental influences that go into mental health and mental disorders, and I specifically focus on anxiety disorders. Over the years, anxiety has become a prevalent issue in terms of collegiate mental health across the nation. What specifically about anxiety do you study, and why do you think it has become such a common facet of the collegiate experience? It really has. Um, I tend to focus on the pre-adolescent or adolescent age group, but I do actually have a small study that I've recently completed working with the Spit for Science sample in college students, so I really try to focus on anxiety across the lifespan. But specifically, while I'm here, my main focus is going to be on that pre-adolescent age. So I'm focusing more on social anxiety disorder, which is really common in that like adolescent age group. So I'm trying to understand like the risks and etiology that go into it. And there's so many. I mean, you can spend like, all day just talking about all of that. So you kind of have to pick the one that calls to you the most. So currently, I'm focusing on behavioral inhibition and how that in childhood can set you up to develop anxiety disorder later in your pre-adolescent or adolescent age group. What is different about pre-adolescence versus college students in terms of anxiety? Well, I think school is a common factor throughout the whole Mm -hmm. age group. And that's actually why I'm very interested in this pre-adolescent age group, because I think it's often overlooked. Because often with anxiety, you have people focusing on inhibited children or shy children. So it's something their parents or their teachers can notice and bring them in and get treated for. And then you have, you know, high school and college where you yourself are kind of your own agent more and you can come in and say, oh, I'm feeling really anxious. I'm feeling these symptoms. You know, what can I do about it? Like school sucks. I hate this. This is making me feel X, Y, and Z. But that, you know, pre-adolescent age, while the same things are going on, I don't necessarily feel they're captured as much because you're kind of in that in-between era of growing up and you also have puberty coming on, which is going to really affect you and like cause a lot of symptoms that may disappear later on. It is very different across all the ages, like in terms of maybe specific environmental triggers, but I think the overall story is going to be kind of the same for certain people. Studies in many different fields have shown that the influence of genes and environment change over the course of one's life, where genes could be more influential at one point than environment, and that could evolve over time. At the pre-adolescent age that you study, what is the general understanding of the importance of genetic and environmental influences and anxiety outcomes? 
it does change over time. And my research so far doesn't specifically look at the age effects. I mean, that would be something that I do want to get to eventually. And there is research showing that um, more in depression research shows that at this age, like the genes come online. So, I mean, there's, you know, evidence then to think that the same would happen for anxiety. But really, you know, it's going to be a pretty moderate effect of genetics. So we tend to find anywhere from like 40 to 60 percent for the factors that go into anxiety and then for the anxiety itself. Um, so about 40, 60 percent of the causes that go into those individual differences are due to genetics. And so the rest is going to be caused to like environmental factors or maybe even just measurement error and the task you were using to pick up the anxiety. So when you boil it down, it's kind of still 50-50. And I think most people would probably guess that anyway. But I still think it's pretty informative because then you need to look at, well, how do those genetic factors change over time? Do they have um, other similarities with maybe certain risk factors or certain other like physiological components or neurological components that we hadn't thought of before? So that's where the genetics really come into play to me. Like that's how they're important. You mentioned earlier that you recently used Spit for Science data for a study about anxiety and VCU students in particular. What were you exploring with that study, and what did you end up finding out? Yeah, so that was actually a fun project that I originally um, started out doing for a statistics class. And so, you know, you just it's a typical class assignment where you do a project that's of publishable quality and, you know, finish it by the end. And I was pretty pleased with it. So I decided to continue further and actually like, make it into a full manuscript with some of my other um, colleagues here. So it's looking at um, students with various like mental health disorders and symptoms and whether that can predict their use of the services that VCU has to offer. And it started out just looking at anxiety and then it kind of um, ballooned into also including um, depression and alcohol use disorder and antisocial personality disorder and stressful life events. And so surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, I mean, anxiety and depression have pretty high prevalences in this, you know, college sample, but they really didn't predict whether people would go to the well or go to counseling services or disability services or even like regular health services. Alcohol use disorder was really the main one that predicted everything. So I actually found that really interesting. Um, and surprisingly, there's very, very little research specifically on college students. And um, when I set out to do that project, I didn't expect that. I thought that there would be so much out there for me to learn from and then as I got into the project, I realized that it was really something I was making a major contribution to, which was a little surprising because college students have a lot. I mean, they struggle a lot. Like we've all been to college. Like I went to college. I mean, most people listening to this went to college. Like they understand that that's a really hard time. So the fact that many people don't do research on it was very surprising. That's why I spit for science is very, very important. All the work that Danielle and Kobe and everyone's doing is really important here on this campus. Do you feel like students with alcohol use disorders were more likely to seek support services because of the punitive aspect of alcohol use on campus? That's a really good point, and it's actually something that I hadn't thought of. I mean, the manuscript is currently floating around to people like Linda Hancock and like other people at the well and at these um, other services, so they'll probably be able to fill in some of those gaps that I personally couldn't really 
speak to or even really think about when I was writing it because I am coming from such a research perspective. And that question in and of itself highlights why we need these collaborations across campuses and all these partnerships and translational work to be going on because one person or even a team of people can't think of everything that really goes into informing all of these studies and all these results. How did you first get involved in research? Research to me kind of goes back to high school. Um, I was in a program in high school that really emphasized like culminating research projects every year. And so it's funny because I would do them, but I don't really think I understood what research was. And so it's really funny for me to kind of look back and think about those and think about how much I just didn't get it, like didn't get the research process, didn't really get science in a way. I mean, I was the kid who in middle school did like, oh, does a plant grow better in darkness or light? From Because I didn't care. So it really took college, I think, to kind of bring all those pieces together. Um, so I remember seeing an advertisement in my bathroom dorm for like a research seminar and how um, my school, I went to, to the University of Richmond and they're very good at providing like summer fellowships for undergraduates and how they were promoting, you know, like the summer fellowship for that year and all the applications were due. And I had no idea what it was, but I thought it sounded cool. So I think I went to a seminar and I really liked what I heard. It was rat research, which I don't do anymore. And so I contacted the professor, and he let me volunteer in his lab. And then the next year, a friend of mine said, oh, you like rats? Well, I have a friend working with this other professor, and it might be more up your alley, so you should get in touch with her. And then that's really where everything blossomed, was kind of switching labs and being able to be a little bit more independent and like have a lot of other people kind of working under me as I got older which is like kind of imposing this hierarchy to begin with in science. So no wonder we think of everything that way. Um, so I did work on, trying to think of how to word it, trying to understand the visual perception, like the cognitive processes that go into visual perception and visual expertise. And so we started out with rats and then we moved to EEG research and humans. And it was fun. And I really enjoyed it, but it was a lot of work, and I had trouble seeing how it applied to everyday life. Um, it applied to people who had specific brain injury, like say they couldn't process um, faces or other objects correctly anymore, or maybe they were born with a disorder where they didn't process in that way to begin with. But I still had trouble seeing how that was like benefiting everybody. So I became very disillusioned, and I thought, okay, I'm gonna go work at VCU for a little while. And I worked here and I was doing the complete opposite. And I was doing kind of, it was, in hindsight, it was a translational project, but it was so disorganized that it made me kind of hate everything even more. So I decided that I was going to leave research behind completely, despite liking it and actually, not to brag, but like being fairly good at it. I mean, that was really where my skill set was at that point. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to get a master's degree, and like a terminal master's, and do that, and then just go work. And that's just what I wanted to do. And I got a year into that master's program, and I hated it, and I missed research. And that's when I knew that I had to go back and get a PhD. So I left, and I came back here, and my old job let me come back, and I was just barely scraping by, like hourly employee. And then I contacted the directors of my program now, and... Like a month later, I was in the program. One of the things that people often discuss on this podcast is the fact that careers in research are rarely linear. 
Do you have any specific advice for current students related to navigating their interests in research or science more broadly, understanding that your path hasn't been linear either? Exactly. And I think that that's not really emphasized to undergrads because even sometimes today, like I'll feel bad about myself because I'm not doing the same research I started out doing 10 years ago. And it's unbelievable that it was about 10 years ago when I um, started doing research and went to college. And sometimes I think that there's this misperception that that can be a bad thing. And so I'll sometimes have people like contact me from my undergraduate mentor's lab. Like, you know, they'll be about to graduate and be like, oh, my gosh, you know, how do I go about doing this? And I don't know if I want to continue doing this type of research. Or maybe I do really want to continue doing this research, but it's such a small area. How do I do that? And so there's this idea that you kind of have to stay on that road because if you bounce around, people are going to think that maybe you don't have enough integrity or you're not serious about what you do. And that's really not true. And if someone were to tell you that, then that's really not the program or the work environment to be at in the first place. Do you have a specific plan or hope for what kind of job you'll get when you graduate? Or are you still exploring new opportunities as that time approaches? I kind of gave up on the idea of having like a set life path once uh, after my experience of going back to grad school the first time where, you know, because I really thought this is what my life is going to look like. And my life looks nothing like that now. So I think that just listening to yourself and listening to all the signs around you is very, very important. And just kind of going where the opportunities are and going where the doors open is going to be important. So, yeah, I don't want to close myself off and say, I really want this path or I really, really want that path. Because who knows where the opportunities are going to be in a couple of years when I do graduate. Thanks to Jessica Bourdon for joining us, and thank you for listening. Tune in for a new episode of Why Science every other Thursday at kobe.vcu.edu slash podcast and soundcloud.com slash science. Mm-hmm.